And if you would stand for the reading of God's Word, join me beginning in verse 6. Romans chapter 9, verse 6. But it is not as though the Word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, about this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Even us, whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we read a passage like this and we do not know what to say. We see your power on display. We see our weakness and our frailty and our mouths are stopped. Father, my prayer is that we might stop our mouths, but not close our eyes. 
that we would look to your word to see what you have said, to see how you have described yourself, and that as we see you, as you have revealed, that we would praise, that we would worship, that we would not speak back to him who has formed us. I pray that you would give us the grace to receive this word and to praise you for who you are. In Christ's name I ask it. Amen. You may be seated. We're now in the third week of a four-part series on election and predestination. And much of what we'll discuss today is built on a foundation that Pastor Jeremy laid in parts one and two. So if at any point you think I'm assuming too much, I hope Pastor Jeremy answered those objections, laid that groundwork in weeks one and two. And if you're joining us part way, uh, you might you might go back and listen to those at some point if you find your questions aren't being answered. In part one, Pastor Jeremy established God's sovereignty over all things, even when people do evil. God can so ordain evil that He is fully removed from that evil, and yet He is in control of it. While he is sovereign over the event itself, he is able to use it for good. He is sovereign over even evil. God never does evil, but the actions of sinful men, even Satan himself, God can claim credit for or responsibility for. We also saw that events can be truly caused by sinful man, and also truly caused by God. Man is responsible for the evil. God is not. And man does what he wants, while God remains sovereign. In part two, we saw that God specifically is sovereign over salvation. That even though those who trust in Christ freely choose Christ, God is sovereign over that free choice. God freely chooses those whom He will save, those who will come to Him. We saw that in Adam, all of us, all of us are totally depraved. There is no aspect of our thinking, our behavior, or our affections that is not tainted by sin. And because we hate the light, we do not come to the light. Therefore, those who come to the light do so because God has opened their eyes. God has given them new eyes to see and ears to hear. There was nothing in any one of us that was any better than anyone else that caused us to choose to follow Christ. But it was God alone in His mercy who gave us life, and then we came. Election is not conditioned on something good in us, nor is it based on something foreseen in us. It is unconditional. Election is unconditional. God has mercy on whom He will. 
So, if God is sovereign over salvation, if God is sovereign over those who come to him, is he also sovereign over those who reject him? If he is the cause of those who come to him, is he likewise the cause of those who don't? Pastor Jeremy said last week, if you follow the cord of salvation back to the wall, you find God. He is the source. He is the ultimate foundation. Is the same true of those who reject God? Is the same true of those who are reprobate or damned? We read in 1 John 4:19, we love because he first loved us. Can we say then the opposite? They hate because God first hated them. If we follow the cord of damnation back to the wall, do we find God? Do the reprobate hate him because he first hated them? This is the question of double predestination. R.C. Sproul, in the book we've recommended to you, Chosen by God, notes, if there is such a thing as predestination at all, and if that predestination does not include everyone, then we must not shrink back from the necessary inference that there are two sides to predestination. In some sense, anyone who believes in predestination must believe in some type of double predestination. Now, I agree with Sproul. There's at least some sense in which predestination is double. When God chooses some, he knowingly does not choose others. We know that. There are two sides. But that's not really the question of double predestination. The question of double predestination is, does God predestine the elect in the same way and with the same involvement that he predestines the non-elect? Is damnation unconditional just as salvation or election is unconditional? That is double predestination. That God predestines the elect and the non-elect in the same way, fundamentally, and with the same involvement. Just as God predestines the elect unconditionally, so too he predestines the reprobate or the damned unconditionally. Or to use Paul's picture, this is the image before time that God sits over a neutral, sinless lump of clay. And he says, I would like to make two vessels, one for destruction and one for salvation. Is that the biblical picture or not? That's our question today. Does God choose unconditionally whom he will damn just like he chooses unconditionally those whom he will save. Now, <clears throat> if you look in your notes, 
You'll see those preliminary questions. Is God's predestination of the elect unconditional? If God is sovereign over salvation, then how does he relate to the non-elect? Does God predestine the elect and the non-elect in the same way with the same involvement? Why talk about this? There are several reasons, I think, that this topic and this passage is so valuable. And low down on that list is that we all agree on the theological nuance of the topic. That's not the primary point. At the top of the list is that we think rightly about God and who he is and what he does. And then right below that, and maybe even tied for first, is that we learn to rightly read and respond to God's scripture. When God speaks about himself, that we learn to wrestle with what he has said in the right way. When we ask ourselves, has God done a thing? Your opinion, my opinion, Pastor Jeremy's opinion, John Calvin's opinion, don't matter. What matters is God's opinion and God's word. And so when we come to his word, the question is not, what do we think about his word? It's whether or not he has spoken it or not. We need to learn and be reminded to put our hands over our mouths and let God speak for himself. Now, I'm, I'm disturbed by many well-known pastors, many well-known commentators who read Romans 9 and some of the jarring statements in it, and they dismiss it because they come to the text with their own theological preconceptions, they don't even listen to what it's saying. Now, in the end, I might agree with them more than I do with others, but they missed the whole process. And in this regard, I want to commend to you John Piper's treatment of Romans, in particular Romans 9. Most of what I, the arguments I give you for it today are going to come from him, and I'm going to disagree with a lot of what he said, a lot of what he said. But the way that he approaches the text, the way that he listens to it and let God, lets God speak for himself is exactly what we want. That's what we want, even if at the end of the day you disagree with him. So with that said... Here's what we're going to do with the rest of our time. I'm going to present to you six arguments for double predestination, and then I'm going to seek to answer those arguments from Romans 9. My opinion doesn't matter. We want to hear what God himself says. So let's jump into Romans 9 and see these arguments. Now, if you hear these arguments and you are unmoved, if you hear these arguments and don't feel the weight of what's being said, something is wrong. If you're listening to the Scripture, if you're willing to be instructed by God, these arguments should provoke you, stir you up, cause you to think, and cause you to put your face in the text to see if that's what it really says. Number one. Number one. It depends not on human will or exertion. 
In verse 16, Paul says, So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. In the context of salvation and election, it depends not on human will or exertion. Then it stands to reason that when it comes to damnation, it does not depend on human will or exertion, but it depends on God who hardens. If God's mercy depends on God, then so does God's hardening. That points to double predestination. Number two, the same lump in verse 21 to 23. Paul says that God or the potter draws from the clay from the same lump and he makes one vessel for honorable use and another vessel for dishonorable use. That's the picture that Paul himself paints. One side, a second side. One vessel for honorable use, namely salvation. Another vessel for dishonorable use, namely destruction. This too points to double predestination. If it's not the goodness of the clay that gets it saved, then it's not the badness of the clay that gets it damned. God chooses freely what He will make from the lump. It's not the character of one handful of clay that gets it destroyed. And it's not the character of the other handful that gets it saved. Number three, verse 18 He hardens whomever He wills. He hardens whomever He wills. That is the most direct statement of double predestination or in favor of double predestination in the whole Bible. The parallel is exact. God has mercy on whomever He wants, and God hardens whomever He wants. If God is unconstrained in His mercy, then He is unconstrained in His damnation. Paul insists here that God is free to harden whomever He wants. We, we, we don't like that. We don't like that. But that is what Paul says. This exact parallel is direct and it clearly supports double predestination. And take that in for a second. God hardens anyone He wants. Is that how you view and think about God? Paul says it clearly. He has mercy on anyone He wants. And He hardens anyone He wants. We like the first part. We kick against the second Number four, why does he still find fault? If your understanding of God hardening Pharaoh is this, Pharaoh first hardened his own heart. And it was only after Pharaoh first hardened his own heart that God came in and hardened Pharaoh's heart. If that's your understanding of God's hardening, verse 19 doesn't make any sense at all. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? 
Well, if Paul understands God's hardening as a response to Pharaoh's hardening, nobody would ask that question. You would not ask, why does he still find fault? The answer's on the tip of your tongue because Pharaoh hardened his own heart. And the fact that this question is allowed to be asked tells us that that is not how Paul understands Pharaoh's hardening. God did not harden Pharaoh as a response to Pharaoh's hardening, or no one would ask, why does he still find fault? And if you go back to the account in Exodus, before Pharaoh ever hardened his heart, God said, Moses, go to Pharaoh, I will harden his heart. Before Pharaoh ever heard from Moses. So why does he still find fault, argues strongly that Paul does not understand Pharaoh's hardening as a response to Pharaoh's self-hardening. Therefore, God's predestination of Pharaoh to damnation is not based on Pharaoh's self-hardening. That again points to double predestination. Number five, this is not in Romans 9, it's in Romans 11. The elect obtained it, and the rest were hardened. Again, parallelism, symmetry. The elect, what did they do? They obtained salvation. The rest, what did they do? They were hardened. They were hardened. Two sides. The elect are saved. The rest are hardened. God hardens the non-elect. That's double predestination. And then sixth, probably thought of as most powerful, Jacob have I loved and Esau have I hated. Specific individuals are named. Time is involved. The parallelism is exact. Well, it's the inverse. I loved Jacob. I hated Esau. And the way that it is read is before either were born, before either had done anything good or bad. I love Jacob and I hate Esau. God is free to hate whom he wants. He's free to harden whom he wants. In the same way that God freely chose to love Jacob, God freely chose to hate Esau. That points to unconditional damnation, reprobation, Now, there's surely more arguments for double predestination, but these are, from what I've seen, the best, the strongest scriptural argumentation for double predestination. I'm ignoring all, pretty much, all theological sorts of arguments. We're just trying to stick to the text. Take in the weight of those arguments. You hear all of that stacked up on top of itself. You ought to say, whoa, I never, thought, I never thought about that before. But that looks like what he's saying. If you don't feel that weight, I don't think you're listening to what God has said about himself. And let me add, if these arguments are true, if these arguments hold, we ought to believe in and affirm double predestination. If God says that it's true, it is true. We don't stand in judgment of it. If Romans 9 teaches these arguments, 
or what these arguments claim. If Romans 9 teaches double predestination, we should believe it and bow to it. Put your theological arguments in the dumpster. If Romans 9 means this, our theology must teach it. Now let's look at what answers we can give to these arguments. What are we going to say to these arguments? Please do not answer back theologically. We have one answer to these arguments. What is it? Romans 9. If we have any answer to Romans 9, it can't be outside of Romans 9. Well, I just don't think that's the way God works. I don't care what you think. I, I do, I do. I love but, but really, in the argument, it's irrelevant what you think. Bless your heart, but it's irrelevant. God's speaking. The only answer we can have is to go back to Romans 9 and see if that is, in fact, what it teaches So let's look at these arguments one at a time. It depends not on human will or exertion, verse 16. True enough, it depends not on human will or exertion. What depends not on human will or exertion? Read the rest of the verse. But on God who has mercy. What does it not say? But on God who hardens. It says that it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Now, you could say there's a valid inference that if that's true, then so is hardening, but it's an inference, not a statement. When you go back to, uh, sorry, you're blank, it is God's mercy that does not depend on human will or exertion. It is God's mercy that depends on that. Both God's own declaration of himself in Exodus 33, which this is referring to, and Paul's statement here limit the statement to God's mercy. Exodus 33, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. What specifically doesn't depend on human will or exertion is God's mercy. That's what doesn't depend on human will. Second, Paul is answering the question, who will become children of God? In the chain of his argument, the question is, why aren't all Israelites saved? Paul says you shouldn't be surprised by that. Only some Israelites were saved from the beginning. In fact, before there was such a thing as Israel. And he gives us two examples. Abraham. Abraham had a son. His name was Ishmael. He's not named in this passage, but that's surely in Paul's mind. Abraham had a son, and God said, not him, but next year I'm going to come back and Sarah will have a child. And she laughs, and so his name's Isaac, laughter, because she said, no way, I'm 90. I'm 90. I'm not having a kid. You're out of your mind. So Paul is establishing... Jake, uh, sorry, Isaac was the one who the promise came to. And then when it comes to the twins, Jacob and Esau, the question is, is Jacob better than Esau? 
Is Esau worse than Jacob? Does God choose Jacob because he knows what he's going to become? Paul's answer is emphatically no. It was before they were born, before either had done anything good or bad, God chose Jacob. He chose Jacob. So the issue Paul is answering is not, why does God damn Esau? The question is, why does God save Jacob? And the answer he gives is, God saves Jacob because God saved Jacob. God saved Jacob because he wanted to. He freely chose Jacob. It's a possible inference that God freely chooses, but it's not said here. Number two, the same lump in verses 21 to 23. God chooses to make a vessel for honorable use and dishonorable use from a lump of clay. Now, it's true both of these vessels, the honorable and dishonorable, are taken from the same lump. And if that lump is neutral, if this lump is before time, we have a very strong argument for double predestination. However, A, the whole lump is corrupt and deserves hell. The whole lump is corrupt and deserves hell. The only lump of humanity that we have any knowledge about is the lump of mankind that is in Adam. Pastor Jeremy even read this last week. All have sinned in Adam. There is no lump of humanity apart from Adam. If God is choosing from a lump of clay, uh, of human clay, where does he get that lump? It is a lump in Adam, guilty of Adam's sin. God's freedom to make a dishonorable vessel is at least in part based on the state of the clay. It can't be insignificant that this discussion does not take place in the garden prior to the fall. If God had this discussion in the garden before Adam fell and sinned, we'd have a different case. But this is post-fall. And Paul's analogy here, or Paul's argument here in Romans, he's already stated, we know that death has spread to all men because all sinned. We know that death reigned through that one man. We know that not one person or that that one trespass led to the condemnation of all men. And we know that by that one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. And we know, Romans 3, that there is none who is righteous, no, not one. So it's not without reason in Romans that I see the whole lump as corrupt and deserving hell. But does Paul give any indication of that? I think he does. B, there's two different statements in verse 22. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? Same analogy, I think Paul's extending it in order to make known his riches, the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy prepared beforehand for glory. Compare what he says about the vessels of wrath and the vessels of mercy. One, he says, they were prepared for destruction. It is a passive 
verb. I, I think that comes across in English, but not necessarily. It's a passive verb, meaning we are not told who did the hardening. It may very well be God, but it doesn't say that. But we're told explicitly when it comes to the vessels of mercy, who prepared the vessels of mercy? Who did it? God did. He prepared them. And second, when did he prepare them? We're told specifically the vessels of mercy are prepared beforehand. The same is not said of the vessels of wrath. This word prepared beforehand, it's only found twice in the, in the Bible. Once is here, and the other is Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That said of the elect, those God has mercy on, the same is not said of the reprobate or the damned. That points to a very real difference between God's involvement with the elect and the non-elect. Both of those arguments. Piper says regarding this passive and active verb, we can only guess why Paul uses this passive verb in reference to vessels of wrath and an active verb in reference to vessels of mercy. Okay, fair enough. My guess is that it is because God's involvement with the elect is not the same as it is with the reprobate. Number three, he hardens whomever he wills. He hardens whomever he wills. Verse 18, so then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. Do you hesitate to say amen to that? God says it. It's crystal clear. He hardens whomever he wills. But does that point to before time God hardening a neutral lump of clay? Is that what God or Paul has in mind? But look carefully at what Paul says. So then, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. I ask you, what sort of creature does God have mercy on? Not a neutral, sinless creature. No mercy needed. The fact that he has mercy on whomever he wills tells us what about the creatures? They are sinful. They need His mercy. And if that's the lump of creatures He's drawing from for mercy, it's the same lump He's drawing from for hardening. When God tells Moses He has mercy on whomever He has mercy, do you know what prompted Him to say that? Do you know what prompted Moses to cry out, show me your glory? It was on the heels of the golden calf, the chapter before. And God said, I'm going to wipe them all out. Why, God? Why? Nobody asks why. They just made themselves a golden calf and worshipped it and said, behold your Lord. 
They just called God a golden calf, a little cow. Uh, it's probably not the right word. Cattle, steer, I don't know. Golden calf. What does that tell us? When God declares, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, it's sinful people that he says it to. So when he says, I will harden whom I will harden, it is sinful people that he says it to. God does not have mercy on sinless people. In some sense, sin is a condition for mercy. That doesn't violate that election is unconditional. Don't worry. But you've got to be sinful in order for God to have mercy on you. God hardens be whomever he wills from among fallen men. He hardens whomever he wills from among fallen men. This is what I'm arguing. When God chooses to harden certain men, that choice is from among fallen men who deserve God's wrath. They deserve his wrath, but the elect do not deserve his mercy. That's a difference. A difference between God's predestination of the elect and the non-elect. We do not get what we deserve. They do get what they deserve. Four, why does he still find fault? Verse 19. This is a little more complicated. I'm not going to have time to answer it completely. If you've read Romans, you know that Paul regularly will use phrases like this. What then shall we say? What then? Are we Jews any better off? Then what becomes of our boasting? What then shall we say? What then shall we say? What shall we say then? What then? What then shall we say? What then shall we say to these things? That's all quoting from Romans. And then he gets to verse 14. What shall we say then? And then again in verse 30, what shall we say then? And later on, I ask then, what then? So I ask, and so on. But this phrase, you will say to me then, is unique. It's only here in all of Paul's writings. Paul anticipates this question, but I don't think it's a question that Paul wants us to ask as much as a question Paul knows some of us will. It's not a question that we ought to ask. You're not wrong if you don't ask it. But still, it's true that if Paul's understanding of God's hardening Pharaoh is that it's a response to Pharaoh's self-hardening, this question doesn't make any sense. No one would ask this question if the answer that Paul had ready was, hey, Pharaoh hardened himself first. That means we agree with double predestination in this specific way. God chooses to harden Pharaoh before Pharaoh hardened himself. We can't argue with that. That's what he says. We also want to remember what Pastor Jeremy said in his first message, that both Pharaoh and God can be the cause of Pharaoh's hardening. So that when God says, I have hardened Pharaoh, or I will harden Pharaoh, and Pharaoh says, I have hardened myself, or I will harden myself, 
they can both be true at the same time. So, B, God does no violence to the wills of those he hardens. Who can resist his will? Insists that Pharaoh's hardening is something other than what Pharaoh himself wanted. But God hardened Pharaoh's heart, and Pharaoh wanted it. He loved it. He approved it. Number five, the elect obtained it and the rest were hardened. Turn to Romans 11. To answer this objection, look at the first part of it. Two verses earlier, verse 5, and listen to what God says. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. So, the elect obtained salvation by grace through faith. The remnant is chosen by grace. Were they chosen by merit? Because of works? No way. It's on the basis of grace, not works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. Now, what about the rest? What does the verse say? The elect obtained it. The rest, they were hardened. The rest were hardened. That is true. But consider who the rest are. Look two verses earlier. Verse 3. Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Who are the rest that are hardened? The Israelites who bowed the knee to Baal, who killed God's prophets. God is not hardening an innocent group of people. He is hardening those who killed his prophets and bowed the knee to Baal. Second, God's choice is not from a neutral people. The rest were hardened in their wickedness. They were not made into wicked men. They were not made into wicked people. And again, we see a real and scriptural distinction between God's involvement with the elect and the non-elect. He chooses his remnant by grace apart from anything they had done. The same cannot be said of those who were chosen to be hardened. They deserved what they got. They wanted what they got. Very different than the elect. And lastly, Jacob have I loved and Esau have I hated. Number six. Let me read 11 through 13. Though they were not yet born, 
and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. So Rebecca has twins in her womb. Who will receive the promise? The one whose works are better, right? The one who obeys God, that's the one who's going to be the, the chosen one, right? No. And so what does God do to make it clear that it is not works? Before they're born, God tells something to Rebekah. God's choice of Jacob is told to Rebekah before they had done anything, good or bad. What does he say to her? The older will serve the younger. He does not say to Rebekah, Jacob have I loved and Esau have I hated. I'll show that to you in a second. But what he tells her is the older will serve the younger. Why does God do that? Why does God talk to Rebecca before birth, the birth of her twins? The, the, the answer is here. It's right there in verse 11. In order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls The question is, why does God choose Jacob? The answer is, because of God's choice, not because of Jacob. Before they were born, God said, the older will serve the younger. Now, most of you have read Genesis. I think most of you have read the account of Jacob and Esau. Maybe you even remember this quote of God speaking to Rebekah before they're born. But I ask you, as you read the book of Genesis, does Jacob or does Esau serve Jacob? Do you, do you read in the account of Genesis Esau serving and bowing down to Jacob? No, on the contrary, Jacob does swindle Esau out of his birthright, and he outright lies to his father to get Esau's blessing. But when Jacob and Esau come face to face again, Jacob is on his face bowing down to Esau. Seven times he bows his face to the ground before Esau and he calls himself Esau's servant and he calls Esau Lord. So what? What does that have to do with this? That's the reason Paul adds verse 13. Verse 13 does not begin and... She was not told the older will serve the younger and Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. She was told one thing, the older will serve the younger, period. See that period there? It matters. 
And the next thing that, that Paul says is, as it is written. As it is written. Why does he say that? To prove what he just quoted from Genesis 33. Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated comes from Malachi chapter 1, 1,500 years later. And that proves that what God said about the older and younger came to pass. It is not what God said before they were born or had done anything good or evil. God did not say before he was born, Esau, I hated. He says that 1,500 years later. I've got additional arguments listed there. Okay, basically, here's what I'm saying in number seven. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to look at only one of them. You can look at the rest yourself. Every single time God speaks of the damned or the reprobate, he gives a reason outside of himself for that damnation. Every time God says, I am going to destroy this people, he says why. He gives them a reason why. And the reason is not just because I wanted to, ever. In Paul's conclusion to chapter 9, uh, we're going to look at D. Conclusion to chapter 9. Look at the last four verses of chapter 9. Paul asks, after saying all of these hard things, what shall we say then? What shall we say? And he, he answers the question, that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is, a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? If Paul wanted to teach double predestination, this is the spot to do it. Because God chose that they would be damned. Why? Because he wanted to. And that's the exact answer we get elsewhere when Paul asks, why did he choose us? Because he wanted to. Why did he damn them? Why has Israel stumbled? Because they did not pursue it by faith. Because they wanted the credit for their own salvation. Paul gives a basis for God's judgment of Israel. And it is not his own pleasure. It is outside of himself. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone because they pursued it by works. That points to a distinction between God's predestination of the elect and the non-elect. Why did the Gentiles get it? Because they trusted in Christ. Why did, the, why did the Jews not get it? Because they pursued it, not by faith, but by works. All right, let's wrap it up. Resolution. Here's our conclusion, my conclusion, if you agree with me.
God's predestination of the elect and non-elect are asymmetrical. Asymmetrical. They are not symmetrical. They are not the same. We agree with R.C. Sproul that there is some sense in which there is double predestination. We see that in Scripture. We know that. But we also see in Scripture, not by theological deduction, but by reading the text, that God distinguishes the way He treats the elect from the non-elect. You might, as you read Romans 9, think, God is choosing from a neutral lump of people some to destroy and some to save. But there is no such neutral mass of people. God chooses from among sinful fallen people. So while God Himself, God's own pleasure, God's own desire is the only reason He saves us, nothing good in us, the Scripture does not hesitate to point to the sinfulness of men and not to innate, an innate desire in God for the reason He damns. Number two, God hardens the rest. Piper asks legitimately when he comes to Romans 11, the elect obtained it and the rest were hardened. Who says that? Who says that today? Nobody would say this. And he's right. And I think we should be ashamed if we will not say amen to what God has spoken. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. God really does harden sinful man, not in violation of their will and not to a neutral person, but he really does harden sinful people. And we don't need to be ashamed of that. Next week, Pastor Jeremy is going to expand on some of these things. This in particular, why does God harden some? Listen to verse 23. In order to make known the riches of His glory for vessels of mercy which He prepared beforehand for glory. He chose to save some. None deserved His affection. None deserved His mercy. None deserved to be called His people. But He called some of us His people. God hardens the rest that we might realize what we ourselves were destined for. He hardens the rest to show us what we would have been like if it weren't for His mercy. He hardens the rest to show the riches of His mercy upon us. So when we see the stubborn hardness of Pharaoh or our neighbors, our response is not, I can't believe how stubborn he is. I can't believe this guy. Our response should be, I am Pharaoh apart from the grace of God. That is exactly what I would be like if it weren't for God's mercy. Let me pray. Father in heaven, 
You are in heaven and you do whatever you please. I pray that our thoughts would be conformed to your thoughts, that our words would be conformed to your words, that we would not dare speak about what you have not spoken. And I pray, Lord, that as we read and study and, and search your scripture, that our thoughts would be changed to match yours, that we would see your work in salvation and in damnation, and that we would affirm your goodness and your power so that you might show mercy to those vessels you have prepared beforehand for mercy. We praise you for that mercy in Christ's name. Amen. I don't think any other benediction would be appropriate except Paul's own in Romans 11. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. You're dismissed.